Good morning. You know, if you were to define hope, how would you define it? Or if you were to paint a picture of hope, what would that painting look like? Many years ago, a guy by the name of George Frederick Watts took on that task. He painted his masterpiece that he titled Hope. Here's what it looks like. As you can see, it is a woman sitting on top of the earth playing a harp. What more enviable position to be in than sitting on top of the world, right? But if you look closely, and I don't know if it shows up real well on the screen, but if you look closely, you can see that the harp she's playing has broken strings. The world that she is sitting atop is war-torn. It is facing all sorts of ills. There is depravity and distrust. You can look at her face and see that she has scars and there's a bandage on her head. In other words, we often think of sitting on top of the world as being in the most enviable position. If you're sitting on top of the world, you are in power. You're enthroned above all. You're closer to heaven. But the truth is, sometimes being on top of the world can mask a hellish existence. You know, in my 17 years of ministry, I have seen marriages that look like they were made in heaven. But behind closed doors, the couple was living a hellish existence because of abuse and unfaithfulness. I have seen children who would put a smile on their face and seem to be happy-go-lucky, but underneath the surface, they were dealing with mental and emotional issues because of sexual abuse. I have seen soldiers who, who fought for our country and came home to a hero's welcome only to deal with post-traumatic stress disorder and try to cope with all of the horrors of war. I've seen preachers at the top of their profession blow it all for a sexual escapade. Sometimes what we see on the surface is masking a hellish reality. And such is the case with a woman in the Bible. She's found in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Do you remember Hannah? Hannah was a woman who seemed, at least on the surface, to have it all. She seemed to be in an enviable position. A woman who was married to a man by the name of Elkanah. Unfortunately, she had to share her husband. But maybe that wasn't so bad, at least on the surface, because Elkanah loved Hannah more than he loved his other wife, Peninnah. Even though he had children with his other wife, he loved Hannah above all else. And Hannah didn't have to deal with raising children. She didn't have to deal with changing dirty diapers. She didn't have to deal with waking up in the middle of the night and, and going and silencing crying children. She didn't have to wipe runny noses. She seemed to have all the benefits of being married to a man who loved her dearly, in fact, loved her more than anything, and yet she didn't have much responsibility in the way of children, housework, and all those other things. 
But notice verses 4 and 5 of 1 Samuel chapter 1. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. For he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Now, at first glance, as we said, it may seem that, that Hannah had it all, but there was one thing that troubled her and that overwhelmed her and that underneath the surface you have to understand. Because all the things that we might notice about her at first glance that might seem enviable were things that were trumped by the fact that the Lord had closed her womb. Hannah desperately wanted children to love and to nurture and it had to be difficult to watch Panina, her husband's other wife, tickling her child and seeing, seeing that child laugh and carry on. It had to be difficult watching Panina watch her child take its first steps. It had to be difficult watching her husband and his other wife tending to their children and raising their children together when she so desperately wanted a child of her own to love. Not to mention the fact that to have your womb closed, to be infertile in this day and age, was a sign of punishment from God. Wasn't true, but that's what so many people thought. That if you had your womb closed, if you were a woman who was unable to have children, then it must have meant that God was punishing you for something. And to make matters worse, Peninnah, would heckle and mock and ridicule Hannah every chance she got. Peninnah was a jealous woman, jealous that her husband Elkanah loved Hannah more, and so she took every opportunity to point out the fact that she was unable to have children. She held that over her head because she did have that on Hannah. Notice verse 7. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, that she would provoke her, so she wept and would not eat. Hannah was denied what she wanted most. You ever been there? You ever prayed so hard that God would take away the cancer? Have you ever prayed so hard that you could have just a little more time with your spouse, with your mother, or with your father as they're lying there on their deathbed? Have you ever wanted something so bad that you prayed and you prayed and you prayed your heart out? You ever been denied the one thing that you wanted most? And have you ever asked why? Verse 9, then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Folks, I want to point out to you what Hannah shows us. Hannah shows us that there are two aspects to life. 
there is the horizontal aspect, and that horizontal aspect is life's conditions and circumstances. It's all the things that we have to deal with in life, like a bitter rival who is jealous, who mocks and ridicules us. It's having to deal with infertility or whatever lot in life that maybe you're dealing with. It's life and everything that comes along with it. That's the horizontal dimension. But thankfully, that's not all that there is. Hannah shows us that there's another aspect to life, and it is vertical. There's the horizontal, and then there's the vertical aspect. And when life seems hellish, when the horizontal seems like hell, we look to heaven. We look to the vertical. That's what Hannah did. Notice verses 12 and following. It says, Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought that she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord. I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. And may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Hannah kept the vertical aspect intact. In desperation, she turned to God. And you know why? Because obviously she thought God could do something about her situation. And we need to feel the same way. We need to feel with all of our heart and believe with all of our heart that God can do something. That when life has thrown us a curveball, when the horizontal aspect of life is at its worst, we go to God believing that he will listen, that he will answer. And maybe he won't give us a child like he did with Hannah. Maybe he won't take away the cancer. Maybe he won't allow our loved one to live. But we got to believe he'll give us the strength to deal with whatever the horizontal throws at us, right? And when we believe that, when we come to God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and pour out our spirit to him, and when we say, God, help me, what are we doing? Yes, we're praying, but what, what, is, that, what is that called when we believe that God will answer our prayer? It's called hope. It's called hope. And we all need hope. I don't know how anyone could get through this life without hope. Because as great as this life might be for you, it is nothing but a series of difficulties for someone else. And if you have never suffered, you just haven't lived long enough, because you will. All of us are going to deal with something in life where the only hope we have is God. And we need to be able to go to him and fall on our knees and fall on our faces before him and say, God, I can do nothing. I need you. And we believe that he is there. We believe that he will answer. Because we believe in him and we believe in hope. You look at the book of Lamentations. You look at chapter 3, beginning of verse 1. 
It reads, I am the man who has seen affliction. Because of the rod of his wrath, this is Jeremiah talking, he has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. Those are angry words against God, aren't they? Skip down to verse 15. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Lamentations is Jeremiah's diary, and he is recording all of the things that he has had to deal with, all because God has sent him a message to deliver. And that message is simple. The people in Jeremiah's day and age thought that they could live off their heritage and do whatever they want because God was going to be faithful regardless. They were counting on the fact that they were Jews, but they weren't counting on faithfulness. And God sends a message by Jeremiah to say, I'm tired of putting up with this. An enemy nation is going to come down, it's going to ruin your city, and it's going to take you away into captivity. So be ready. And so Jeremiah is seen as this crazy old man who's talking out of his head, and the people mock and ridicule him because they can't believe what he's saying. And Jeremiah is dealing with life circumstances that are probably beyond anything we could comprehend, all because he is delivering a message from God. He has become a laughingstock. He is being mocked and ridiculed all the day. In fact, it says that a priest, Pashur, put him in stocks to punish him. A priest did that. This wasn't the pagan people around him. This was the religious people that he had to fear for his life from. It was the religious people who were persecuting him. It was the priest that was persecuting him. All because he was delivering a message from God. Things were at their worst. And in a sense, Jeremiah believes, God, you did this, you created this, because I had to deliver this message for you. But when the horizontal became so unbearable, notice how things take a turn in verses 19 and following. He says, remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Jeremiah looked around at his situation and saw it as unbearable. And so he went vertical. And he looked up and he found hope. Very quickly, I want you to pay attention to what he's saying here. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. Loving kindness in the Hebrew is hesed. And it, and it's, it refers to love and, and grace and mercy and faithfulness and goodness and devotion. It's used 240 times throughout the Old Testament and is the most important term in the vocabulary of the Old Testament theology and ethics. Jeremiah has hope in a God who always loves, always protects, always guards, always keeps his promises. God is not a fair-weather fan or a summer soldier. The same God that Jeremiah complains about is the same God that he trusts will see him through. 
He says, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Jeremiah likens the mercies of God to the rising sun. The darkness is a time when evil comes out. It lurks in the shadows. But Jeremiah says, just as the sun always dawns, so will hope. That at the end of the day, no matter how bad it gets, the sun's going to rise, it's going to appear as, as a glow on the horizon, and it's going to get up into the sky, and it is going to be as dependable as God. Great is your faithfulness, he says. You and I cannot even begin to comprehend the incalculable risks that God was willing to take in order to stand by our side. God was faithful to warn the people about what was expected of them. He was faithful to, to warn them of what would happen if they didn't keep the covenant. And he was faithful to carry out those warnings. But he's also faithful to forgive. His faithfulness to us is without measure in this world. And finally, notice the words from Jeremiah. It says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. This was a very familiar phrase to the Jewish people. When the 12 tribes finally entered the promised land after wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, they arrived in a happy place where they lived in homes that they did not build and they ate from crops that they did not grow. But there was one group of people that was left out, it seemed, in the beginning, and it was the Levites. And though they may have seemed forgotten, the truth was that God was giving them something better. To those who would be responsible for serving in the house of God, God would be their portion. He would provide for all their needs. And so the question becomes, what's better? To have the land provide for you or to have God himself provide for you? And so Jeremiah concludes, I will hope in him. The prophet's hope is tied to one thing and one thing only, and that is God providing for all of his needs. And this hope was not found in his circumstances because everything around him seemed hopeless. This hope was found in the things that God had promised and in God himself. You see, we use the word hope all the time, but we use the word hope as sort of wishful thinking, don't we? I hope I get an A on that test. I hope I get a raise at work. I hope it rains. I hope that my children grow up to be successful. We hope all the time. But the things that we hope in should motivate us to do better, to be more diligent, right? I mean, I can say I hope to get an A, but if I hope to get an A, I'd better work hard to get that A. I can say that I hope my children grow up to be godly children or successful or whatever it may be, then I've got to work at that, right? That should motivate me to get them there. I can say I hope I get that promotion at work or that raise at work, but that should motivate me to work harder to get it myself. In other words, hope should change our attitude and our thinking. Hope is a vision of better days. And hope should motivate us. It should change us. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just about being optimistic. When I was a kid, I knew all about hope. When I was a kid at Christmas time, I had a hope for better toys. And I would take out the Montgomery Ward catalog. You guys have no idea what I'm talking about. There was no Amazon wish list or anything like that. You had a Sears catalog and a Montgomery Ward catalog, and I would take them out, and I would look through the toy section, and I would take a Sharpie and circle everything that I wanted. That was my wish list. I would hope 
for better toys. I would hope for Christmas. I couldn't wait till Christmas. Even when the presents were wrapped and under the tree, I would hope that they were what I asked for. Sometimes I'd even go in there and I would open the end of them to see what I got and I'd wrap them back up. One year I got a football that I'd asked for. I found it hidden in my mother's closet and I thought, it's only a couple of weeks away. I'm going to go out and I'm going to play with it. I'll put it back and she'll never notice. And I took it outside and we were playing, me and my friend, and he skipped it across the pavement and put a scuff on it. Needless to say, I got in pretty big trouble for that one. I knew all about hope. I'm sure you know all about hope as well. Just on a grander scale, right? Just on a, on a bigger scale. We all know about hoping for things. We also know that hope is dependent upon the reliability of the one we're counting on, right? Hope depends on the one who's making the promise. So when you read through Scripture, you'll notice that hope is never pulled out of thin air. No one is ever asked to just blindly follow hope. Hope is based on a history with God. Notice that thread running throughout Scripture over and over again, that the hope we read about in Scripture is based on a history with God. When has God ever let you down? Hope is based on reason. It's based on logic. It's not irrational. Our hope is based on a real God who makes real promises and who has given us real reasons as to why we can believe in Him. The psalmist had it right in Psalm 9 and 10 when he wrote, And those who know your name will put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. If this whole Jesus thing is not trustworthy or reliable, then you have no reason to hope. Your hope is in vain, as Paul said. But the Christian's vision for a better day is not based on wishful thinking. Instead, it's based on God's promises that point to a particular person, something that we've been talking about all this year, right? 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Hope isn't wrapped up in a bigger house or a better spouse or more toys or, or a raise at work. Hope is based on a person. Hope is wrapped up in a person. The Hebrew writer said, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having waited patiently, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have taken refuge. We would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us, this hope that we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Our hope is wrapped up in a God that cannot lie. Our hope is wrapped up in a God who is unchanging. Our hope is wrapped up in a Savior who died for us. 
Our hope is wrapped up in a promise and a person. Throughout the Bible, we see the message that better days are ahead. Again, follow that thread. Throughout the Bible, better days are ahead. There's something better waiting for us. The question is, do you believe it? Do you have hope? And how much hope do you have? Does your hope for a better life change your attitude and your outlook on life? Or let me ask it this way. Have you been ruined by hope? Have you come to a place where you have so much hope that you can't even see life the same way any longer? That the horizontal does not even affect you like it does so many other people because you have been ruined by hope. I want to leave you with another picture this morning. This picture is not a painting at all. It's an actual picture. And the gentleman, I believe his name was Kevin Carter, who took this picture, won the Pulitzer Prize. It won Photograph of the Year, and here it is. How disturbing is that, right? This is a little Sudanese girl who is about to die from starvation, on the brink of starvation, and there is a vulture sitting behind her waiting for his next meal. And you look at that and you say, where is God? How could God sit idly by and let this play out? But if you're like me, I see something else, too. Call me crazy, but I see hope in this picture. Do you see it? I see a little girl that's about to leave the horizontal and not have to deal with the junk of this world anymore, right? Who's going to have an eternity to spend with the Heavenly Father and not have to grow up in a world full of sin and strife and starvation and other things that represent a fallen world. Maybe I've just been ruined by hope, but I see something different in this picture. Because that's what hope does to you. It helps you to see the bigger picture and not just the horizontal. It helps you to look up in the most desperate of times to see something greater. When God's vision becomes your vision, you see things differently. You can get up and you can put two feet on the ground and go about your day even though for the first time in your life, after 50 years, your spouse is gone. For the first time in as long as you can remember, you're facing the day without your partner, without your, your loved one. Hope allows a person to smile and laugh, even though their body is riddled with cancer. Hope allows us to celebrate the life of Benny Cates and to remember that this Christian man is going to spend eternity with the Heavenly Father. And it allows us to move forward knowing that there's something better out there. And it's not wishful thinking. It's not just optimism. It's based on a 
on a reality. It's based on a God who cannot lie. It's based on a God who promises us this. And it's based on a person. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. I want to pray this morning that hope ruins you. And I want to pray that all of you who are dealing with difficult circumstances from living in the horizontal aspect will derive some hope from the fact that God has said this isn't all that there is. This isn't as good as it gets. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day. We thank you for life, and while there are so many wonderful aspects to this life, so many things that we get to enjoy, and we thank you for all of those, we also thank you, God, that this isn't all that there is. We thank you, Lord, that, that there is something better to come. And Lord, we pray that we can all grab hold of that hope. That for those of us who have not grabbed hold of it, for those of us who may not know much about this hope, that we will sit down, that we will study your word, that we will, that we will put on Christ in baptism, that we'll seek to live faithfully, doing your will so that we can spend eternity with you. God, thank you for this church family. Thank you for this faith community. Thank you for the fact that we get to come together to worship you and to love on one another. And may we always seek to do that in a way that pleases you. Help us to encourage one another with hope. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Maybe you have not begun a daily walk with God. The beautiful thing about that is that there's hope. That as long as you can draw breath, you have hope. You want to study with someone? If you understand that faith and repentance and confessing Jesus as Lord should lead to, to a decision to be immersed into Christ for the remission of your sins, and you're ready to do that this morning, then let's take care of that. Maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're dealing with some difficulties and you just need the prayers of this church family. Don't leave here without hope this morning. It's there. Grab a hold of it. Clinton's going to lead us in a song. If we can help you, come now as we stand and as we sing.